0: Man, what's going on? How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, man. I'm running around like crazy with these storms that are just rolling in. Yeah, I can absolutely
1: imagine that. That's that's the truth. I like your setup you have there. Yeah, you like the office? Yeah, I need to I need to send you a TCU football.
0: <laughs> oh man! Oh, you got you think I need some purple in here?
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> good deal, Mel. No, I actually do have a surprise for you because. I do have this guy, nice, ready to go, I and love it. Uh, got me got me a little little one here too.
1: Oh my gosh! I should have made a drink before we started. <laughs> <laughs> man, I love that. Yeah, Peter's uh, Peter's been uh, handing those out to to select people, and they've, everybody's raved about them.
0: Dude, we I, I love it, man. It's perfect. I needed some more uh, molds for for my ice cubes, anyways. That was awesome
1: yeah yeah it was a cool idea we came up with it because uh i have a lake house and i drink a lot of ranch waters yeah and and i just started talking and i got him into drinking ranch waters and we thought how could we just incorporate that into some marketing piece and so that that card that's in the box yeah that has all different types of recipes in it not just related to uh to bourbon which is kind of what the ice cube is for but uh but it has some ranch water recipes in it too that are pretty cool
0: yeah, I loved it. I, I saw the recipes on there. I'm gonna give a couple of them a try.
1: Yeah. Did you awesome. did
0: you come up with these recipes like in your own kitchen and your own bar?
1: <laughs> man, I would love to say I did, but I did not. Um, <laughs> we actually Peter uh, came up with them on his own, so I don't know how he got them, but but he did it. So uh, that's cool, man. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm, uh, now that i got my drink all prepped, I'm ready to dive into this. What, what, what's the legal ramifications? Can I be held responsible for what I say on this thing?
1: Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, You know, I don't think so. I guess it depends on what you say, though. I guess I've got to be careful on what I say, too, though, because uh, I don't want to breach any confidentiality with clients or with settlements that we've had. Um, so anyway, I'm going to be on my P's and Q's when it comes to talking about other cases.
0: So how, how does, how does that usually work when it comes to like a legal case that you got, what are things that you can and can't say? I imagine just specifics about, I mean, you can still talk about your experiences with carriers and stuff, right? But just not like specific cases.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can, you can talk about specific experiences and, uh, and cases in general, but you can't talk about settlement values and who the carrier was in particular settlements, etc. cetera. I gotcha. Yep. Well, cool, man. Yeah, well, they're they just... going to make sure nobody talks about it, you know? <laughs> they, don't, they don't want everybody knowing how much they truly will pay on a claim.
0: Yeah, no kidding, right? Well, uh, just for everybody listening, why don't we start off with just kind of you telling a little bit about your firm and, you know, what you guys specialize in and, and all that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I started the law firm in September of 2016. And uh, it was just me, it was Preston Dugas law firm. And I wanted to specialize in property tax litigation and insurance disputes. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I left my last law firm is because we would, we would get into a particular campaign like we did hip implants. And then we'd get into storm damage cases and if there was a big hurricane. And then we would get into uh, underpayment of royalty if there was a big campaign to be made there. And it, it really didn't allow me to become an expert in any one field because we would switch constantly. And so I really wanted to leave and become a, tr- a true legal expert in a particular field. And so I left in September of 2016 by myself and, and focused on property tax litigation uh, for commercial property owners and insurance disputes. And uh, we've grown. Every single year since, and now we have uh, five lawyers in house, two lawyers that are of counsel, and we have a big staff. And obviously, the name has changed to Dugas and Cercelli. And so, uh, you know, we've continued to be lucky, uh, but I truly believe it's because we have focused on uh, client communication and really focused on not just settling cases, but but fighting to get enough money to cover all of the costs to do the repairs that are necessary. And so we've, we've been fortunate in the sense that we haven't had to advertise. We've just continuously grown
0: through referrals. That's awesome, man. And what, like, why, why insurance litigation? I mean, there's so many avenues of law. You were doing some other things before. What, what made insurance litigation special?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, for a few different reasons. One, Uh, We have storms every year and that litigation is never going to go away because insurance companies are going to continue to find ways uh, to really underpay and deny valid claims. And they will always do that because insurance companies don't make money when they pay claims. They make money by investing premiums. So the longer they delay a payment, the more money they make in premiums, the more claims they deny. The more money they make in premiums and the other reason truthfully is uh, my parents lost a lot of uh, not only businesses but a lot of property uh, in hurricane katrina and they had to fight their insurance company and they never got whole uh, from the whole the the entire matter and uh, when you see your family uh, you know fight their entire lives to build a life that they're used to and then lose it all from one storm. Uh it's pretty impactful and it'll make you hate uh insurance companies in a heartbeat. Um and they they, you know, underpaid thousands of people from Hurricane Katrina. And so it was just unfortunate. So it was it's it's sort of my passion too to make sure that property owners recover enough money.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I... I feel like everybody who's in this industry has some kind of personal tie one way or another of something that happened that made them kind of dive into the deep end in this specific industry i know i came up as a roofer in this industry and i just was kind of going along the way i noticed that carriers were getting harder to work with and then all of a sudden i was just like well who's representing the homeowner like who who stands up for the homeowner if if they don't know what to do and what avenue to go to sometimes your hands are tied as a contractor, you can't talk about certain things. So it's like, so who, where does a homeowner turn to? Cause they're relying on the contractor a lot. And that's how I found out about being a public adjuster. So I feel like yeah. one way or another, somebody's always got a personal tie into this one, one way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But,
1: uh, you have to, uh, in order to do this business because insurance companies, uh, are going to try to go after you. No matter if you're the contractor public adjuster or lawyer um, in numerous different ways and try to smear what you're trying to do to help people out by making it look like we are just storm chasers and it's a shame and that's the way the carriers want it because if they can if the carrier that has in-house lawyers uh, trained adjusters um, etc that are on their side and all they have is the homeowner that typically has never filed an insurance claim ever in their life, uh, they're going to be able to run over that 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 homeowner all day long and and basically control the narrative, and it's it's just a shame. So yeah, you have, in my opinion, you have to have some type of, uh, uh you know, personal life e- event that makes you really want to stick through this and make make sure makes you want to fight for the homeowner.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I you know. There's a lot of guys in this industry, but one thing I took away from John who tailing is he he paints this analogy like this homeowner is on this island or that, you know, you've got your balance scales on each side and it's just the the weight is severely shifted onto the carrier side for their advantage and this homeowner just feels like they're on this little island. They try to poke holes in the relationship with the contractor try to put so much pressure on the contractor that the contractor just doesn't want to get involved. Um, they make it where they lobby in laws where you know, attorneys can't advertise directly to homeowners. So unless you get a referral from a contractor or unless you know what a PA is, you're kind of stuck out there not knowing what to do. And that's why I'm hoping stuff like this podcast and the industry in general kind of bands together to get the word out because most people, when they're hit with something and they hit some resistance, they don't know what that next step is. So that's why I really appreciate having guys like you on here so we can just kind of offer people some more information.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know? And it's imperative to people for people to be informed because how can you make any good decision without the, the all the information?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that, like, you and I have talked before and – it's, in my opinion, I feel like you guys have gone to trial in particular a lot and more so than I've heard of other attorneys. I, I hear and see and meet attorneys all the time, but I never really hear a lot about cases that always that go, actually go to trial. A lot of these guys go to mitigation or they go to settlement, um, but I, I don't hear a lot about the trial and having these big whacks on the chin to the carrier. But I mean, you went to trial how many times this last year?
1: Yeah, so in 2022, we went to trial three times, and in 2021, we went to trial once. Um, and so in the past, I would say 15 months, we've been to trial four times, and we have trial uh, March 27th in Fort Worth um, on, a, on on Delaney Vineyards, and, uh, and that'll be one that I don't see settling. And it'll be another trial under our belts, and so it'll be five trials in less than two years, and we've got several other ones coming up too this year that'll be that'll be exciting, uh, that are pretty big. So yeah, we, we for whatever reason, uh, the insurance companies have decided that uh, they want to start trying these cases and not paying a reasonable amount to get the case resolved, and so um, our law firm has made the stance that. If that's the route they're going to take then we'll oblige and we'll go to trial against them period the end we're not going to you know we're not going to settle for less just because it's trial is a lot of work
0: yeah well and i i I found and i explain this to homeowners all the time the carrier's greatest asset is time and they're a risk management company and they realize that the longer that they stretch this out the more likely that you're going to get fired from your job or one of your family members gets sick or your wife gets sick and dies, or some kind of other burden happens where you just want to give up the fight. Um, or they, you know, give you stretch this out for so long that when it does get to you or to, to an attorney in general, and they finally get to mediation six months later that they just are like, Oh dude, I'm done with this. I'm just going to take what I'm, what I'm given. How how do you kind of coach your, Client on that delay, deny, defend approach that the carrier always seems to have in their in their strategy.
1: Yeah, no, and you're absolutely right about that. And and another reason they love to delay is the the chance that the property owner or homeowner will sell their property. Yeah, because it changes the damages valuation. Um, and so you know what we really try to do from the very beginning of any engagement is we really try to uh, do a good job of letting the property owner know that the carriers are fighting more than they ever have and we will likely have to go to trial and it could take a year to two years, but we wanna know upfront that they're in it with us for the long haul. And if they're not, then we're probably not the right law firm for them. They probably need to go hire somebody else, Um, but we really try to do a good job of that. Now, at the end of the day, uh, I've never forced a client to trial. It's a client decision because they're risking, uh, you know, potentially risking money that the carrier has offered uh, to settle the claim. But at the end of the day, uh, we always let the client know that we're we're supportive in any uh, any way that, that they want to move forward, whether it's settle or, or go to trial. And I think clients feel comfortable with us in going to trial because they know we're we're you know we've been to trial and and we won. Um, and they, they know we'll be well-prepared when we go.
0: Yeah. I mean, talking about trial, how, how many – you guys are saying four times in the last 15 months. I mean, you guys know other attorneys and other firms that are in this industry. How does that kind of compare to some of the other guys that are out there?
1: Um, you know, I don't know of any other firm that's been the trial on storm damage cases four times in the past 15 months. I just don't. Um, I've heard of some attorneys going to trial here and there. Uh, but I haven't heard of anybody going as, as much as us. And I don't know that that's always a great thing. These tri- trials are not easy. It's a lot yeah. of work and a lot of effort. And, uh, a lot of law firms are very risk adverse when it comes to trials, because remember, uh, 90% of the law firms that handle these types of cases are handling them on a contingent fee where the law firm is paying the costs. And so, uh, when you have money that you're risking, when you go to trial, um, a lot of people are risk adverse and don't want to risk that money. Um, but, but we're willing to do that because again, we made a commitment to the client that we were going to fight to the end with this client. And so, um, you know, I can't advise a client to settle, uh, and accept less than what I truly believe the case is worth just because I don't want to risk the money that I've uh, put into a case before so I you know I think we go to trial more than anybody I think this year is going to be the same um, I just don't see some of these cases settling because of the amount that's in dispute uh, so definitely. I, I definitely see future trials for us this year and and one for sure March 27th
0: so uh, outside of like, getting a you know the homeowner back to pre-loss condition i mean that's the overall goal right so in these trials do, that you go to do any of these results do they kind of result in a win overall in the industry like do these trial these decisions that are happening in trials do they carry any leverage into like setting a standard whereas you know if somebody else sues for something similar now we have a new standard that's set And we can go into each trial that follows that, you know, with more teeth. Are you guys, uh, have y'all been able to have a part in that? Or are y'all kind of still following in the footsteps of other ones that have happened before? Do y'all have anything that y'all are hoping will change in the future kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, well, at least for our firm and carriers handling cases against our firm, I know that now they know we're willing to go to trial on a case if we have to, and the carrier is going to have to spend a lot of money preparing. And they're not only risking uh, the, the settlement value, but they're risking paying their attorneys and they're risking having to pay interest and attorney's fees on top of the actual award. Um, you know, we had one case where we were trying to settle for $125,000 and the carrier refused. And, uh, you know, we took them to trial. All they wanted to offer was 80000 And that's only a $45,000 difference, but we still took them to trial. And we ended up uh, getting actual damages plus attorney's fees plus interest. And they, you know, they had to pay their attorneys at a big law firm to go defend that trial. So they had to pay actual damages, attorney's fees, and interest plus uh, their own attorneys to go try that lawsuit. And all they had to do was pay $125,000 to resolve the case. Yeah. Um, and so we're hoping that that sets a precedent with all the carriers. Um, but you know, some of these carriers are a little more hard-headed than others. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I know, it seems like there's more and more firms that are growing on the consumer side of the, the attorneys that they can hire. Are you noticing that the carriers are beefing up their side as well? Like, what does the attorney pool look like on their side? Do they just kind of have in house people? Do they outsource it to firms? And they just kind of rolodex through firms? Or do they have consistent ones that they use? Uh,
1: So the carriers, uh, for the most part, will hire outside counsel. Um, It's rare that they'll use their own in house counsel in litigation. Sometimes it happens, but it's rare. Um, And For years, uh, we saw the same attorneys for the same carriers, but what I've seen in the past few years is carriers trying law firms that I've never seen before. And that's somewhat dangerous, and that may be somewhat why we're going to trial more than than what we have in the past is because these new law firms that carriers are hiring may wanna try to make a name for themselves. So they'll push to go try Mm -hmm. a case Um, But I have seen carriers branch out to different law firms that we've never seen before that really don't have as much experience in first party cases that some of these other defense firms have. And, uh, you know, the reasons can vary um, depending on, you know, for example, a higher up uh, vice president may have a relationship with one law firm and then that guy leaves and you have a new guy that steps in, well, he may decide to go to a different third-party law firm than the other guy was. So there's different reasons for that, but we have seen a shift from the normal law firms that we we, we would typically see.
0: Hmm. Do you think there's like a particular reason that they're outsourcing to different people now to these new firms? Are, Are they not liking the results? The other ones, like are the other ones getting their teeth kicked in, or are they trying to just, I don't know, like throw y'all curveballs. I
1: think it's just a number of different reasons from maybe getting their teeth kicked in uh, to maybe mishandling some files. Um, like I said earlier, potentially some people leaving within the insurance company that had a relationship with that law firm. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe, maybe the lawyer leaving the, the particular firm and going to a different firm and bringing the client with them. There's a host of different reasons for it um, but we have seen a change uh, recently more so than ever before
0: well I know uh, I know a lot of people you know they watch Dateline and shows and movies and stuff I mean what what areas in trial in particular do carriers like to attack like when you go through trial and y'all are, are y'all calling witnesses do they like to attack certain things in these types of cases versus, I don't know, uh, other other types of trial cases?
1: Yeah, I would say it really depends on the case itself. Um, uh, I, you know, we had one case that uh, was related to the tornadoes in Dallas, and a tree fell through the roof, and State Farm wanted to narrow the damage to the one particular room in which the tree fell. And that's just pretty absurd that, I'm sorry, it wasn't a tree, it was a chimney. The tree fall was a different case. But they wanted to, to narrow the focus to that one room. And what they did in that case was they used uh, a contractor's estimate to claim that uh, the focus was narrow because a contractor had submitted an estimate for that particular room and that's it. Um, And uh, they wanted to focus on the fact that it was an older home uh, that may not be in pristine condition. And we were able to, you know, divert the jury's attention away from those red herrings and to have the jury focus on the actual damage and the photographs and the fact that, you know, that contractor only submitted that estimate for temporary repairs and it wasn't to do all the work. And so we really got, we able to focus the jury on those issues um, and, and show that, you know, the carrier decided to insure this older home and there may have been an issue or two with the older home, just like there is with any property. Um, but they chose to insure it and a chimney fell through the roof uh, from a tornado and they, they owed for the damage. Um, and, you know, the jury, the jury went with us. So
0: Yeah. Cause I'm, i'm seeing particular areas it seems like of where the carrier likes to attack you know and this is prior to going to trial but it, it seems like the carrier likes to try to poke holes in things like you know your data loss or whether it, whether or not the damage itself is from hail or water or whatever other cause of loss that there was or there's some kind of policy dispute they like to target in on these Specific things to try to poke holes in it prior to it going to like a trial situation. So, is there anything in particular prior to trial, whenever you first get a case during discovery, that you just say, "Man, this is a, a bread and butter move by the carrier. They're trying to dispute the data loss. They're trying to dispute whether or not they abided by their duties after loss." I mean, what? Give, give me some insight on what they like to attack most.
1: Yeah. I would say, uh, the single most issue that we deal with as a firm is segregating damages. And the carriers have really started to focus on, uh, if you have, uh, if there's a case where there's a need for a roof replacement, is it due solely from wind or hail? Or is there some other need that's contributing to the roof replacement like wear and tear or some other issue. And what the carriers want to do is they want to commingle all of these different type of causes because there's case law that says they only have to pay for the damage related to the covered cause of loss. So if the carrier can commingle wear and tear and all these other issues with a covered cause of loss like hail, then they only have to pay for the portion related to the hail. And so that's that's really what they have focused on, in our cases at least, to try to minimize uh, the payout. And we've just done a really good job of you know, focusing on the fact that the roof only needs to be replaced because of the covered cause of loss, whether or not it's wind or hail. And while there may be wear and tear, while there may be other installation issues with the roof, those issues alone are not the reason why the roof needs to be replaced. And so if you can exclude those reasons from why the roof needs to be replaced, in our mind you don't have a concurrent causation issue, you only have one cause of the loss and that's wind or hail. And so we've just tried to do a good job of focusing on the real reason why the roof needs to be replaced. I mean let's let's think about this, right? You got a you got a home where a roof's 10 years old and everything's been fine. No leaks, no issues. And on the 10th year, there's a major hail storm. All right? And hail causes major damage to that homeowner's roof. And three months later the homeowner starts to see leaks. Because that's typically the way it's gonna happen. You're not gonna see a leak that same night. Alright? Of course, over the course of 10 years, you're going to have wear and tear, and you're going to have an older roof. And there's no way to prevent that. I don't care how much maintenance you do. The roof is going to age over time, just like everything else in life, right? There's not one thing that doesn't age in life. And so what the carrier wants to do is say, well, there's a bunch of wear and tear on here. We may have hail damage, we may not, but there's a bunch of wear and tear, and that's partly why the roof needs to be replaced, and you haven't taken that into consideration in your damage model. And, but we fight that by saying, yes, there may be wear and tear, but the day before that hailstorm hit, the roof was functioning properly. The roof could have stayed on there another 15, 20 years, and now it can't because of the hailstorm, and not any other reason, not because of wear and tear, not because of an installation issue. And so that as a, as a public adjuster, that's really what you should be focusing on as well. And that's what you should be doing and setting up the file if it ever does have to go legal or further uh, than, than you handling it. Um, just make sure that you, you, know, you are differentiating what the real cause of loss is and, uh, and and that's the single most important or single most uh, single biggest issue that we see uh, carriers fighting on nowadays.
0: Yeah. No, and you know I've got a file right now where it just it's exactly the situation that, that you're talking about. Um, they had old damage. They settled for like a coding job a while back ago, and then they experienced uh, the freeze that happened. Um, and they had water that, you know, came into the building and flooded like three units inside this commercial building. And, um, essentially they were given the excuse that, well, it's wear and tear issue. The roof's not in good shape. And I basically got the adjuster and the engineer on a zoom call that I recorded. And I basically had the engineer admit to me that, you know, you guys keep saying where and tear. like where's the underwriting file to show that there was damages prior? Not, there isn't one. It doesn't exist. I said, okay. I said, is it possible that these cracks existed prior to the freeze and the flashings that are around the penetrations in the roof? And he was like, uh, yeah, they, they could have pre-existed. And I said, okay, well, are we confirming that nothing leaked prior to this freeze? And he was like, well, yeah, nothing No evidence of anything leaking prior. I said, okay, if water got inside one of those cracks in the membrane and then expanded, is it possible that that crack could have now gotten worse? And he goes, yes. (laughs) And and I said, okay, adjuster, if it wasn't leaking before, maybe it wasn't in great shape, but we have causation that something went in, made something that wasn't in great shape worse, and now it's leaking. And we focused on that and we got her to overturn it. So, um, it's right in line, I think with what you're saying. And I think in a lot of other times too, there, I think all state is really notorious for this. They'll come out, they'll write, and this is for more residential claims. Um, they'll come out and they'll write an estimate underneath the damage or underneath their deductible, but they'll put enough on there where they'll, where they'll pay for individual shingles or they'll pay for one or two facets. They'll pay for your vents and flashings, but then, um, They'll, it'll keep it just underneath your deductible. And then if you guys quit on that and you move on, you get another claim a couple years later. Now they're discussing segregating damages out. So now you're getting a full roof replacement minus the half or the quarter roof that they paid for a year or two ago. And I'm just seeing carriers more and more play that game. So I think you're right line with that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And the the bigger carriers like Allstate and State Farm do it more than anybody. Um, They will play on the fact that uh, you may have had previous damage from a previous storm event. And sorry that you didn't see that claim through, uh, but uh, that we're not responsible for that because you have a new policy and the damage didn't occur during our new policy. Um, It's a shame because it's really taking advantage, again, of the property owner that doesn't know the difference. Um, and that's why it's so important to have people on the property owner side. Um, exactly. One thing you brought up earlier that I definitely wanted to, to touch upon uh, tonight was um, just talking about the date of loss issue because that is another major issue, but it's a really a major issue for us more so than for the carriers. And I, I mean that in the sense that when we get a claim oftentimes uh, we are having to do a full weather analysis to see what the most likely date of loss is. And a lot of times, more often than not, we're having to change the date of loss. And so what I would do is urge contractors and public adjusters to really do the deep dive in a claim before they make it to really nail down what the proper date of loss is, um, because changing it later, uh, while we've been successful at doing it, it is very difficult, and it does give the insurance companies another avenue to fight and to try to reduce the value of the claim. I had one case where, uh, you know, the the property owner started to have leaks, so they had a contractor. Uh, you know, inspect the roof and the contractor said you had hail damage and they did, they had a great hail damage claim. And the contractor helped the property owner make the claim. Uh, but they made the, the, the claim under a weather event that happened three months prior to the date they made the claim. Well, if they would have just looked back another nine months, there was a way more significant hailstorm that had occurred when the damage probably really happened. Um, But the contractor had written up this report that said the hail damage was only three months before and it wasn't the real date of loss and it, it just, it really makes our job way more difficult. So I would just implore everybody to do a better job at looking at the weather data to give the true date of loss before making the claim. Even if you have to spend a little money to do it, go do that. It's just so important. It's it's so important.
0: Yeah, no. And I, and I'd like to get your input on this too, because I date of discovery has been a really popular thing to do by contractors. And it's essentially where, you know, in my opinion, the contractor doesn't really know, or maybe he's thinking that the carrier knows of a better loss date than they do, and they put it in the hands of the carrier to choose a date of loss and or they don't really give a data loss. They say, I don't know, or they don't disclose it. And so the person who's taking the phone call on the carrier side, puts the date of loss as the day that they called. Well, if it if more and more carriers are engaging in, in an engineer to come out to look at this stuff, and the, one of the very, m- probably in my opinion, the most uh, popular thing that they do is dispute the date of loss. So if you did a date of discovery, and the carrier decided to put it on a date that has 0.75 inch hail. When you could have gone a month earlier and gotten a 1.2, 1.5, 1.75 inch hailstorm, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. You're putting it in the hands of the carrier. You're just asking to get screwed. And, um, like you said, it's much more difficult as I've been successful at changing the data loss. Once I've been involved, it is difficult and it takes extra time. So if you set the right date from the very beginning, I feel like it it sets everything up after that much better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Couldn't agree more. I I will say this though, if for whatever reason, uh, you just have to make the claim without giving a date of loss, uh, I would rather you not give a date of loss and make that clear to the adjuster that that's still under investigation but we, we have just started noticing leaks, then give a, another date of loss for a storm event that's no good, right? Because as as long as the claim file is documented that you made the claim and the date is still under investigation, then that's, that's still a lot easier to change than if you give an invalid date of loss and their engineer went out and inspected just for that date, because that's what they do, right? If you give mm-hmm. January 1st of 2023 as the date of the hail event, then the carrier's not going to go above and beyond to find the right date. Their engineer's not going to go above and beyond to find the right date. They're going to focus on that one date. And I'll mm-hmm. give you a perfect example of that. Um, we uh, tried a case in November of last year, and um i can't remember the who the carrier was it was a it was a commercial claim though in east texas and the contractor gave a particular date and the engineer went out and looked at uh, weather events and got a whole weather event for an entire year okay but focused on that one particular date and said the hail was under one inch in size on that particular date and was not big enough to cause the damage that they were seeing at the property, period the end, right? Well, if you looked in that engineer's own weather date, he had the true date of loss in there where there was 1.5 inch hail that hit the property and the the size of hail that they found at the property was guess how big, yeah. 1.5 inches. But they the, the engineers never looked at a different date Well, we had to change the date in the lawsuit to the proper date of loss. And when we did that, the carrier made a big deal that we had to file a new claim, et cetera, et cetera. And we fought that and we won, but it would have been a lot easier if, in my opinion, they either would have put, well, we're not sure of the date because we just started noticing leaks, or if they would have just looked that entire year and put in the better date of loss you know, which is always the yeah. best practice.
0: What, what's, what's your recommendation for, you know, a homeowner or a public adjuster that, you know, if they get a file and they need to change the data loss, that, you know, the carriers very, very commonly just say, well, you need to file a different claim. What, what's kind of your best approach or what's your best um, thing that you can kind a of, little tidbit that you can give to people that might be able to beef up their approach to overcoming that rebuttal a little bit.
1: So if they've already made a claim with an invalid date of loss,
0: Mm -hmm. or just that's the best guess at the time. And once somebody like me gets involved or, um, you know, the contractor better contractor gets involved and they do a little bit more of a deep dive and they just realize it needs to be two months earlier or something like that. That's
1: so if you're a homeowner, or a commercial property owner, uh, a lot of times you're not going to know the true date of loss because a, a wind or hailstorm will pass by your property and you won't know if there's damage that has occurred that night because, again, you won't see leaks for several months after the storm or maybe even a year after the storm, mm-hmm. especially on commercial properties. And so what I'm saying is when you make the claim, if you're unclear at that point and you don't know how to pinpoint the date, then then tell the adjuster that when you make the claim. Just say, I don't know the particular date. We're still trying to uh, investigate to see when the particular date is. Because then that does put some onerous on the insurance company to at least help in that regard, even though they probably won't do much to help at all, but at least buys you time the problem is before the lawsuit, if you give that date and then you want to change it prior to the lawsuit, then you know I don't know that the carrier is really going to uh, negotiate or try to work with you on the claim until you make a new claim. Yeah. And if you don't make a new claim, then your only option is hiring a lawyer at that point. It, there's just so many pitfalls with insurance claims it's unbelievable and it's so it's geared so towards the insurance companies and you know for an example if you have to change the date of loss and they convince you to make a new claim and that's six months down the road then what a lot of insurance companies what they will do is they will say well your policy requires that you give prompt notice of a claim and you've taken six months to make a claim under the correct date of loss and therefore we're prejudiced in investigating. And it's complete BS, Um, but that's the kind of uh, stuff that that they do to try to minimize and underpay claims. And so that's why that date of loss is just, it's just so important. Um, And if you're a contractor and you're not sure if you have the right date of loss, then you need to call a lawyer or call uh, a public adjuster Uh, or or get the property owner to do that, um, to to get some help. So that way you're not making uh, a claim for an improper date of loss. It's just so important to get it right the first time. Um, And it's, it just, it is difficult to change.
0: Well, that's an interesting point of like somebody trying to delay and not file their claim just in general, until six months, eight months, almost a year later. Because I we run into I feel like we run into that a lot in DFW because it's the number one hail market in the entire country, and there's an estimated over 8,500 roofing contractors in DFW. So when something hits and you're in ground zero um, or you're on the outskirts of it, um, you're flooded. You're inundated with you know, 15, 20, 30 door knocks a day, and it can just be a hassle. It could be a pain in the butt. And most people are just like, you know what, I'm not even going to mess with this until all the... Riff Raff gets out of town. All the fly by night guys get out of town, and all of a sudden that one month turns into three months. That three months turns into six. Six turns into a year, and now they're backs up against a wall and they're against the time clock. But most people don't know that there is a time clock. Yep. And so I, I tell everybody, like, if you're gonna wait, it you got to make sure you put it on your calendar or something because if you wait too long, you're, you're really gonna put yourself in a position that you could be violating your duties after loss and it could put you in a really big bind with the carrier.
1: Absolutely. And, and look my position for every homeowner is that if a wind or hail storm hits your property and you know that it hit your property, then you absolutely 100% should make a claim and it'll do two things. One, it will Lock in with that particular carrier and that particular storm date whether you have hail damage or not. Let's say you make a claim and the insurance company comes out and inspects and they send you a letter and it says you have no hail damage to your roof. Well, great, save that letter because if you switch insurance companies and another hail storm hits and you make a new claim, then that new carrier could potentially blame that prior hailstorm on the damage that's existing on your roof. And you'll have that letter that says, hey, we made a claim from that storm date and, and, and the carrier said that there was no damage. So we have an expert adjuster uh, that has been out that has said that there's no damage uh, to the roof. And so you, you can minimize those arguments when you make a claim, but if you don't make a claim and then you wait until a later date to make a claim, then most of the time the carrier is going to blame that previous storm event on damage. So that's why I would advise every homeowner to make a claim. Your your premiums typically are not uh, based on the, the number of claims you make, unless if you're making you know, five or six claims a year, you're going to be fine. Premiums are based on Uh, the uh, number of payouts in a geographical region and and other factors too. Um, But they're not just based on the amount of claims you make in a particular year. So make a claim and the other thing it'll do for you is if you truly do have damage, you need to get your roof replaced. Don't wait until leaks start to happen and you've done additional damage to the interior of your home. You wanna make sure that you prevent that from happening. So always make a claim in my opinion, at least.
0: Yeah. No, and, and that's 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 very, very true about having the documentation from a denial. So I, I took one, it was here in Rockwall. It's about a 115 square residential house. And the carrier, I think it was Allstate, they were given a really, really big kickback. They were trying to say a lot of this stuff was not hail damage at first. Then they switched and said, well, this is old Damage because I think the guy looked and found an old storm that hit in the area. And I said, okay, how long? And, and then I kind of pivoted and I asked uh, the homeowner, I said, how long have you been with them? And they, he was like, oh, I've been with them for you know 15 years or something like that. And I said, okay, did you guys ever make a previous claim on the roof? And he said, yeah, we did a couple years ago or about four or five years ago. And I said, okay, awesome. So I called the carrier back up and I said, guys, I want to see, the, I understand he filed the claim. You guys came out and denied the roof. I want all the documentation regarding that previous claim. And at first they didn't want to give it to me. And I said, well, it's pertinent claim file information regarding the, this investigation on this claim. And so they sent it over and it was a full denial. They said no hail damage at all. And so I asked the guy then I said, well, what happened between this year and this year that you're saying it's existing damages. And he didn't have an answer. And then I got an overturn. So it is having that documentation is key. And don't bank on the fact that the carrier still has it. Make sure you keep it. And like you said, one way or the other, if it's a if it's a denial, great, they don't have anything to deny next time that there's a hailstorm. And in fact, if you get one a year later, two years later, that's a fresh piece of evidence that you can use. And like you said, even if you switch carriers, It becomes even more important that the carrier may look at that and go well that was pre-existing that has nothing to do with us well i actually have a claim from my last guy and he said there's nothing here like that's that's great like that's a huge piece that's a huge tool
1: yeah absolutely i mean when the carriers go out they are looking for ways to deny or underpay your claim period the end
0: yeah i mean so in your opinion throughout this process like what we talked about some of these pitfalls like what what do you think is the most most detrimental factor to you like when you bring on a file something that a pa could have done or a contractor could have done i mean is the data loss kind of the, the number one thing or are there some other really detrimental things to y'all when y'all get a case and all of a sudden boom you get a surprise
1: i would say there's a number of different things and it's it's uh it's it's typically more than one thing and it's uh, it's anywhere from i've had a public adjuster before on on a big claim admit to uh no damage on you, you know like if you have di- several different roofing types admit to no damage on a particular roofing type to try to get the carrier to commit on the other roofing types and then when it when it goes sour and you have to get a lawyer involved and we send an expert out and that expert looks at all the roof types and says no there, there's absolutely damage on all the roof types it just makes the claim so much harder for us so you know i guess i would say don't try to play games to get the carrier committed and then change your mind later um, if you truly believe that there's no damage fine um, but You know, be careful on on what you're telling adjusters just to get them to commit. Um, I would say date of loss issue is always big. Um, I would say another big issue is a contractor or PA estimate, right? You give your estimate to the insurance company because you uh, believe that they may pay a claim. And even though it may be a good estimate and it's a good preliminary estimate, a lot of times there's gonna be additional damages that we find in the lawsuit that you may not have found. But once you give your estimate to the insurance company, they love to try to lock the insured in, uh, in, the, in the litigation. And it just makes our job so much harder in the litigation. And if there's aspects of replacing that roof that the contractor or public adjuster missed, and our experts want to bring it in, then we always do, but it just makes it that much more difficult. And just to be upfront, a lot of public adjusters don't have a contractor background like you do. And so when they're writing the scope to replace a roof, they may be be missing items that should be in there to, to get a full scope. And when they do that and they submit that to the carrier, and then we have to add those things in later, it really makes our job extremely difficult because when we get involved, all reasonability with the carriers has have gone out the window. I mean, they are gonna do, and their lawyers are gonna do everything uh, to try to minimize and underpay the claim, period, the end, even though it may be what's needed on the claim. Um, so I would just say, be careful on sending in estimates and if you do send in one, make sure you've put in the time and effort to work with the contractor to, to make sure it's everything that's needed for that claim. Don't just send an estimate on a few items to get the carrier to bite, hoping that you can add in all this other stuff later on. That, that's just never good. What I advise people is work on the scope first. Get the entire scope nailed down. And if it's through an estimate, fine, but leave you can leave the value of each line item off of an estimate and work on scope first, get the carrier to agree on scope, and then add the cost, right? Because isn't, isn't every insurance claim truly about repairing the property to what it was in pre-loss condition and nailing down what the scope is? It's not really about the cost. It's really about the scope. So nail that down first and then work on the actual costs, and that will alleviate a lot of issues, too, because if you can't work out the scope, you are never going to be able to work out the cost to begin with. Um, So work out the scope.
0: Um, Yeah, and for some perspective of some of the listeners out there, like a lot of times, and it just depends on the roll of the dice with the adjuster that you get, but there's plenty of times where I've had an adjuster who he just scrolls to the last page on my summary. And if it's ridiculous compared to his number, he just goes, look, man, I, I, we're so far off. You can send them to it. You, you can send it to appraisal or do something else with it. And I said, OK, well, so the price is the issue then. And he goes and he goes, yeah. And I said, well, can we go through the estimate like in detail? He said, man, we're just so far off. I, I'm just not even going to we're probably not going to get there. So what I do is I go back into Xactimate and I switch it where all the pricing is off and I just keep it to scope and I resend it to him and I say, okay, now let's go through it in detail because let's not factor in price and let's just actually go through this in detail. And if the guy still refuses to go through it with me in detail, that's when we start looking at violations of, of, of sections of insurance code and misrepresenting policy because he's, there's no standard of procedure for him to investigate this claim properly. And I think that helps tee it up for you too, right? That if I bring you a file and the guy, I have him on recording, refusing to discuss the scope in detail, he's completely focused on price and he won't go through any standard of measure of, or what metric he's using to deny something. I think that helps you, right? Absolutely.
1: Uh, Absolutely. If you can show that the insured, is trying to be reasonable in the insurance claim and the adjuster and carrier are fighting you, then that absolutely helps every step of the way. Even if it's technically not an insurance code violation, it still helps because at the end of the day, if I go to trial, I'm having to convince eight or 12 jurors, depending on the court uh, and depending on the judge, eight or 12 jurors that don't know storm damage, they don't know insurance claims but they do know when somebody's acting unreasonable, right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, if you can work on scope and show that they're refusing to, and then you sent it to a lawyer, then, wow, that looks pretty good, right? You tried to do the right thing, and all you wanted to do was talk about scope, and they, they refused to do that. And so, um, it's, it, yeah, it absolutely helps us for sure.
0: That's good. That's awesome. That's good. That's good stuff. What, what can property owners do? And it's kind of a guided question because I know some of these answers. What, what can property owners do to kind of help their case prior to experiencing a claim? Right? So we've talked about some of the things that we can have after a claims happen. Is there stuff that homeowners can do? And I think this is more geared towards some commercial properties. Is there stuff that homeowners can do prior to a loss to kind of help their case? um
1: you know i think the biggest single thing is really like i said earlier making that claim if you have storm damage just to you really want to document that there's no damage to your property and that's somewhat difficult for a homeowner to do i don't suggest homeowners start climbing on their roofs to start documenting that their roofs have no damage because potentially the homeowners could injure themselves or or damage their own roof um so just really documenting that there's no damage. So maybe setting up a maintenance program with a reputable roofing contractor that comes out once a year and does an inspection and writes a report. Um, That would be the most ideal thing that they could do. And, And I know there's a lot of reputable roofing contractors that will do it for a very minimal expense if you commit to using them if storm damage does happen. And so um, just documenting that there's no damage is the biggest, single biggest thing that a property owner can do. And then when a storm does happen, and if it's hail, then take pictures of the hail. And that way you you can show that hail hit that property. Um, If you hear it coming down, just open up your blinds and take a picture of the hail on the ground um, or anything to document that that hail was hitting the property that day. that, that would be extremely helpful uh, for sure uh, for commercial exactly. property owners the, the same thing you, you, you have those maintenance programs that are massive um, and then when you buy the property and you have that inspection report that says no no damage to the roof keep that keep that handy um, because that's big too but maintenance programs um, having experts come out once a year just to inspect the property those are just it, it's invaluable. And it's, it's most, a lot of people will do it for free even just if you commit to using them, um, after a storm does happen and it's just invaluable.
0: Yeah. Cause I, the maintenance programs I think are great. And a lot of those are more for commercial properties. Um, just making sure your caulking hasn't t- deteriorated, having your guys go up and seal stuff up and make it t- nice and tight. Um, and getting a report on that, I think definitely would help. And I got this one from you about the ring doorbells that people have and, and any security cameras that they have. You know, some people, I know y'all will typically have some kind of cloud storage and it only keeps videos for X amount of time, whether that's a day or five days or 30 days, whatever plan that you have. Make sure that you save that video, right? So if you've got a pool in your backyard, And you've got a security camera or something and you just see these you know mortar shots going off in your in your pool save that video and that way when the adjuster comes you can just give them that visual and you can have it in your back pocket if it goes any further um you know i i know people take pictures of hail but honestly go out and when it's safe obviously don't go out there when it's all dropping down on top of you but go pick up some of the biggest some of the biggest pieces that did fall and put it next to something like a quarter or put it next to like a Pringles can cap or something and just show how, how big it is something to reference. And that way, when they say, well, you know, the, the, map only shows one inch hail and, and then, but you've got a picture of something that's 1.5 inch on your counter. That's a, that's a big statement. So I, I think that's really valuable to have. Um, and then I tell people, some of my customers too, that, Hey, if y'all sell this house, you'll get a new house y'all buy y'all are just in the market to buy something new after y'all there before y'all close and everything have me come out i don't mind doing it for free and most roofers don't because they know that you're going to call them when something does happen um most roofers will come out for free and they'll do a little report for you on a brand new house that you just bought and i'd take pictures of the chimney cap the rain caps the flashings um if there's any kind of like torn shingle or anything that's like got a lot of deterioration on it. I'll take a photo of that and I'll give that to the carrier when they buy the house. So then when they do have something, I can go back and say, well, look, you, you say that this was here prior. Well, this rain cap clearly shows that there's no hail dents in it and just something along those lines are some tricks that i that I've used before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. I, I mean, I had a, a client one time who, who put the hail, next to his finger and mm-hmm. the carrier wanted to claim that the, the hail was less than one inches. So we took that picture and we measured his finger and where the, the hail size was, and it was an inch and a half. And <laughs> it's just, you know, I mean, it's, it's just nail in the coffin, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so absolutely all great ideas.
0: Well, and, and I think, you know, I've talked with, this about with a few other guests. I think the best defense is just having a good policy to begin with. If you got a crap policy, it limits how, how much production your, your PA can do and your attorney. And our hands are tied to a certain extent if the policy is a crap policy to begin with. So I tell people all the time that, you know, PAs, myself and other PAs that I know, will review a policy for free. And... You know, do you guys do that as well where somebody wanted you to take a look at their policy to let them know if they need to up coverage or add endorsements or get something taken off that you can recommend some of that to them if they review it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've done that plenty of times, uh, and I completely agree with you. And in, t- in the state of Texas, you are presumed to know what's in your policy, and so every insured should read their policy. And if they don't understand what's in it, then ask for help to understand. And the person not to go to is your agent. Your agent likely doesn't know everything in your policy. So don't go to your agent expecting him or her to know everything in there. You really should be asking uh, somebody like a public adjuster or a lawyer to review the policy Uh, so you can have a better understanding of what's in your policy because texas expects you to Um, and so yeah it's just so important and most people don't even know uh, what's in their policies and it's a shame and the agents that are selling these policies don't even know and so um it's it's just a shame it just really is the state of the the insurance industry is just getting worse and worse. Um, and it's just because these carriers are they're they're so well funded and they have the biggest lobbyists and uh, they just push every legislative session for, for just something that's chipping away at coverage or uh, chipping away at an insured's rights. Uh, it, it really is a shame.
0: Yeah. Well, talking about crap and policies, <laughs> um, you know, I've got, the, the the main thing I wanted to talk to you about tonight was the cosmetic exclusions. And I know you all deal with this all the time, and it's becoming, I think, more and more common. Um, I kind of just wanted to get some initial stuff from you on exactly what a cosmetic exclusion is, and are you seeing carriers put these into policies more often?
1: Yeah, so a, a cosmetic damage exclusion is just simply that uh, in the policy the carrier says that they will pay for direct physical loss or damage to your home or commercial property. Okay. And so direct physical loss or damage is a hail storm that hit your property and causes damage to your roof. Let's say, as an example, now later in your policy, there are exclusions and the carriers have for not just recently, but they have for, you know, a number of years now have started to include a cosmetic damage exclusion that excludes any direct physical damage that they deem is cosmetic in nature okay and so when you have a hailstorm, the carrier will come out and sometimes they will ad- admit that you have direct physical damage to your roof but They claim that it's cosmetic in nature and therefore it's not covered under the policy. And it's just another way for the carrier to deny your claim. And what I'm not seeing is a reduction in premium when you have that cosmetic damage exclusion from what the property owner was paying in years past. So premiums are going up and exclusions are being put into these policies. Now, when you call, they will tell you, oh, you get a discount if you have a cosmetic damage exclusion. And you may have a current discount, but <laughs> your premiums have not gone down from years past when you had no cosmetic damage exclusion. And so it's just, it's just a way to minimize what the carrier has to pay for. And uh, we're seeing it in almost every policy now especially if you have some type of specialty roof, like a metal roof, um, or, uh, like a built up roof. If you're a commercial property owner, um, I've even seen it in policies where the property owner had shingle roofing. Um, and, uh, you know, shingle roofing to me, there's almost no event that would simply cause cosmetic damage. I mean, if you have a shingle roof and you have hail, that has hit the property of sufficient size and force, um, it's going to cause damage. If it knocks the granules loose and it's the black mats exposed, you're going to have accelerated deterioration and you're going to have damage to that roof. But yeah, we've seen them. It's ju- it's becoming a normal circumstance and it's, it's a shame um, because again, property owners are not being explained what that really means. And some carriers now don't even offer an option where the cosmetic damage exclusion is not in the policy so um that's absolutely you should be looking at your policy to see if you have a cosmetic damage exclusion
0: yeah because i'm i'm even even outside the commercial world residents are you know the residential side is definitely seeing cosmetic exclusions come in um they're doing it on class four shingles for sure Um, you know, or an impact resistant shingle. So when these roofers are going around town, you know, they're selling upselling you on a IR shingle uh, because it's supposed to be more weather resistant, supposed to be more resistant to hail. What a lot of times that your agent or even the roofing contractor doesn't tell you is that the carrier is going to force you to take a cosmetic exclusion with an impact resistant shingle. Farmers is notorious for doing that. Um, I don't even think you can have policy with farmers if you have an impact resistant shingle without a cosmetic exclusion Um, another thing is roofers are pushing uh, a lot of metal so whether that's r panel or standing seam um, there's a lot of benefits that come with having a metal roof Um, but again it's one of those situations that you need to look at they're probably gonna force you to take a cosmetic exclusion and with metal in particular the fight on our end is really difficult and more than likely, unless it is just beat to hell and pop seams are everywhere, or you have a current leak happening, they are going to fight you on it. You could have two inch dents in your metal. It it looks like you've got dents everywhere and they'll deny it on this cosmetic exclusion. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing that happen more and more even on the residential side.
1: Yeah. I I had a case in San Antonio, and I, I still to this day am just baffled by this case. Two and a half inch hail hit the property, we had pictures of the roof, and I mean, it just, it was a copper metal roof, it was pummeled from hail, and the carrier uh, denied the claim based on a cosmetic damage exclusion, and we had to get two weeks before trial before the carrier paid enough money so the property owner could get a brand new roof and only pay their deductible, and, um, absolutely ridiculous because anybody looking at this roof would not think it was cosmetic damage i mean it was it was blasted yeah. but the, but they use that exclusion to delay and deny this claim for years so
0: well and i don't want people to be hesitant to getting ir shingles or hesitant to getting uh metal roofs i just like to set the proper expectation set an expectation meet an expectation people just need to understand what comes with having these products. If you're going to get one of these things and you get pummeled, don't be surprised if the carrier gives you a hard time, be prepared um, to put up a fight because you're probably going to have to. And as long as you understand that and you weigh that into your decision of getting that type of a shingle or that type of a metal roof, then, you know, you're a little bit more prepared when the time comes. So, um, but you know, in these cosmetic exclusions where the term functional and cosmetic come up all the time, whatever functional damage means. Um, cause it's never defined in the policy. You know, where, where does the li- where's the line drawn between functional and cosmetic?
1: Yeah, it, it really depends on the, the particular type of roofing material. And, uh, it almost depends on which expert you ask as well. um, I guess for us, if it's a metal roof with a galvalume coating and that galvalume coating is cracked, then we have uh, good evidence from our experts where there's going to be accelerated deterioration of that roofing system and it's going to cause rust, rust and premature failure. And so to us, that's functional damage. Um, on a shingle roof, again, in our opinion, um, if that black matting is exposed, you're gonna have premature failure, and if it's exposed because of hail, then that's functional damage in our opinion. But this whole cosmetic versus functional is really an insur- insurance-created, uh, you know, insurance-created issue, uh, really, and they don't define it on purpose because they, as long as they don't define it, then it gives them the. Uh, the ability to deny it on whatever basis they want, right? But if they start to define it, then if it meets that definition, they have to pay. And that's why direct physical damage isn't defined either. Um, The more subjective the insurance company can make it, uh, the more they can deny and underpay a claim. And that's what they want because statistics show that the vast majority of people will not fight.
0: Yeah. No, I, you nailed it on the head, man. I, I, in, in another attorney that I've talked to in depth about these, he, he breaks it down that most of these cosmetic exclusions come down to what's subjective opinion versus objective evidence. And there's a reason the carrier doesn't define these things very well in the policy because then they're, then they're on the hook. So they like having this ambiguous, subjective opinion area. Um, But the way that we've kind of uh, been able to work through these cosmetic exclusions is understanding exactly what the metric is. So typically there's some verbiage in, in a cosmetic exclusion somewhere along the lines of service life of the materials or the roof's ability to shed water is usually verbalized one way or another in a cosmetic exclusion but the metric that's key in that, in my opinion, and I want to get your take on it is the terms prior to loss. So typically whatever metric or verb that they're using in that, in that terminology, in that, in that exclusion, it all comes down to prior to loss. So if it's the service life of the material has been shortened as prior to loss, if the uh, roof's ability to shed water has been altered as prior to loss, so when I get these engineer reports that say, yeah, the, there's a separation in the lap seam, but the roof's at no greater risk of, of having water intrude than before. I, I break that down and I attack that all the time. I go, are you, is that your opinion? I mean, what, what, what's the measurement that the lap seam has to be separated in order for water to get in? And, I usually break that down to a point where that where i say okay the only thing that matters is is it at all more risk than it was prior to loss and that's usually how i work around those like is that am am i kind of on key with that
1: yeah absolutely and that that's a great way of explaining it and uh and that's exactly how we attack it um and so uh completely agree with you there um if it's affected more so than it was prior to the loss by Anything, the service life more susceptible to to um, to leaks, whatever it may be, then yeah, absolutely, you can argue that it's functional damage and it's more than just mere cosmetic in nature. But you know, the, the, these these cosmetic damage exclusions ha, are evolving as well. And so I, I know the the policy provision I think that you're talking about um, that used to be the standard cosmetic damage exclusion, but now they're they're becoming more stringent. And more restrictive in the sense that they're requiring a demonstrative hole um, which again if you're focusing on the lap seam and you have a lap seam open then you have a demonstrative hole in my opinion but depending on the particular cosmetic damage exclusion you have yeah there's different ways to fight it Um, but i but i agree um, with exactly what you're saying about them
0: when you're talking about it for for those that are just kind of listening that aren't familiar with it uh, can you describe exactly what you mean by a demonstrative hole because what most people are are typically interpret that as is a physical hole in the decking that you know you got a waterfall in your living room is that right Yep.
1: yep yeah and so it's again it's not defined in the policy so it's how do we define what a demonstrative hole is and it just depends on what the damage is that we're seeing um You know, is it just a crack because what what is exactly a hole? And so, you know, it really just depends on the type of damage that's there. Um, But some of these policies now have become much more stringent in what they're requiring uh, because the policy language they have seen that uh, can be easily, um, easily beat by objective evidence and so the only way to change that is to make them more stringent and become more difficult. And so, uh, you know, um, we've just fought it on, on many different, many different fronts, just depending on the actual damage and the policy language that's left in front of us.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think from a, a perspective that may help some contractors too, is just understanding the product that's on the roof as well. Yeah. And if you understand how that product is made and what layers there are to the materials, if you can show that visually and break that down to somebody, because more than likely these, these people, they don't know what, what, what all these components are. Um, a lot of them have never even been, been in construction before. So to make them understand this, you got to use visuals and some, you know, pretty basic stuff to get them to understand. And you know the way that you would break down a cosmetic exclusion for a stone coated steel uh material is not the same that you would break down for you know a standing seam roof um or a a asphalt shingle roof so um you know for instance there's a difference between a galvaloom uh standing seam and a, and a galvaloom that has a kynar resin coating on top of it and these people are quick to say well that's just paint so if the paint's you know uh Compromise, that's just a cosmetic thing. Well, if you understand your product, you understand that the Kynar resin coating extends, um, additional weatherability resistance on top of the Galvalume. That there's resistance properties to that coating that's on top of the Galvalume. So even though the Galvalume may be okay, that, that resin coating that's on top of that has been compromised and you've got to understand what your product is. So I, I, I tell contractors all the time, just beef up your language and, or other PAs and just know what the product is that's up there and get a visual diagram from the manufacturer if you have to.
1: Yeah. I, no, I completely agree. I, you know, on a TPO roof, one idea that I have had, if there's a cosmetic damage exclusion is hiring a materials expert who can... Uh, maybe look under a magnification of a hail hit on a TPO roof and to see if that material has been uh, stretched or degraded in a a manner in which it's going to lose serviceability over the lifespan of the roof. Now, I haven't had to do that yet Mm -hmm. on a TPO roof, but that's one idea that I've had um, because a lot of TPO cases fall on whether or not there's a fracture in the actual TPO material or not and I just don't think you have to have an actual fracture to have functional damage to a TPO roof. And so, uh, that, that's one area that I have have thought of, of so just to follow up on your, your comment, exactly. No, know, know your material and know what's considered functional damage to that material. And what's going to cause that material to fail prematurely, if not at the time that the damage occurred.
0: Yeah, no, it, you're completely right. And to piggyback on the TPO subject, um, you know, we just got a 400 square job bought and approved where there wasn't a visual tear to the TPO on the top layer. But we got it bought on loss of adhesion because it was a fully adhered system. Now, if that system isn't fully adhered, our approach wouldn't have been the same. But because it was, we actually brought out a product expert uh, from Carlisle that came out now these manufacturers probably aren't going to put their neck out and say yeah this is hail damage and we're going to put our letterhead on it and say that it is but they some of them sometimes they will Sometimes, but more, more than likely they won't but what they will say is our warranty isn't going to be extended on this product anymore and for what reason well because the likelihood that this fully adhered system is going to fail because of a recent loss that happened and We use that as kind of a back tool, but we we were able to prove that without bringing them in physically like on site or do a report or anything. But the reason I bring that up though, is I don't want to get too technical. I just want, I just want homeowners and property owners to know these are the types of questions and these are the types of things that you need to make sure your contractor can do. And if they don't know these types of things, if they don't know how to use utilize these tools, they may not be the best fit for you um they may be able to put on a great system but to deal with insurance to get it paid that's probably not going to be the person that's going to get it done or you have somebody like a public adjuster to come in to help out that that's basically where i'm trying to take it yeah
1: and look that that goes back to what we talked about originally right that the property owner if they keep you on an island then they will win every single time but if you bring in the proper team then at least you'll know the truth and can fight or not fight, depending upon what you want to do. But you don't know the truth unless if you have the right people there looking at it, right? Most property owners don't even know if they have damage or not. And if you don't have somebody looking, then you may never get coverage. And if you don't get coverage for that particular storm event, then you may be out of luck for future storm events as well. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, property owners just need to realize that a lot of times a storm event causes damage, and you may or may not know, but at least get somebody to look at it.
0: Yep. No, and that's great, man. And um, I, what I see a lot happening to these cosmetic exclusions is they will deny replacement of say a metal roof, but they'll offer an option to do a coating job on, on the roof. And this is particular with hail uh, when, when we have hail events. So there's, I've had a couple of clients that I've, dove into a claim on hail, but then I find out there's a previous claim that happened five years ago. And what ended up happening is they accepted a coding job. You and I both know that that's not a proper solution. Uh, to uh, what, I guess what I'm saying is I, I want to know your take and your, what you think your, the response should be from property owners when they are put in this situation and how to kind of handle that or, or change their thinking to not accept that type of a solution.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, you know, if, if it's a home or a commercial piece of property, that's a major asset. And you, you don't want to just put a Band-Aid on a, on a larger problem because at some point, you're gonna have to fix that larger problem. So if, if, if there's a situation where the carrier owes for a roof replacement, and you're just accepting the band-aid, then all you're doing is pushing off the inevitable. Um, The coating's never gonna last as long as the the roof will last. And the carrier owes to put you back in your pre-loss condition. So they owe for that roof. And if you just put that coating on, then again, if a subsequent hail event happens, you may mess up uh, your claim for that subsequent event because you're gonna have to show damage uh, to that coating that can't be repaired, uh, to get, uh, or, or or damage to that coating where you can't repair that coating and can't repair, uh, the, the the underlying roof. And so all you're going to get is new coatings put on. And so I just, I can't stress enough how important it is to make sure that you see these claims through to the end. So you're protecting your property and your asset and your investment. Um, because otherwise, what's the purpose of insurance? You might as well just not pay your premiums and get insurance in um, yeah. if you're not going to take advantage of it.
0: Well, and the main reason I want to talk about the coatings, when, when a carrier offers you a coating, and this is my opinion, they, they, this is a tactic that they're using. They're, they're trying to put a Band-Aid on something, stretch it out past the timelines of when you're able to take action against them, and or whatever your window is to file this claim. And you if you accept that and you get outside of that one year, two year, three years later, now all of a sudden you start having leaks, you're not going to be able to go back and pursue that claim. You're, you're even outside your statute of limitations to be able to sue and to even bring in a lawyer. So in my opinion, they're trying to stretch out this timeline to where they can hold off for now, get you outside your timelines and then they don't have to pay for it or if you get hit with another storm you're not going to be able to dictate what damages are what and they're going to try to say well this is all old damage this has nothing to do with us we gave a coating a while back ago and they accepted it
1: yeah i mean that that's a good point i I mean personally i think that they sell the coating because they hope that that appeases the property owner and the property owner thinks that hey we're we're good now right we got this coating and it's Cause the coating people are going to sell that it's going to last 10 to 20 years, you know? So they, yeah. they think they've got what they need to protect their property when they really don't. And most people, what they don't realize too, is if you have a flat roof and you put a coating on and that flat, flat roof is water saturated, that flat roof is going to continue to leak. Um, um, because that water, that, the, the water within the, in the roofing system is going to continue to come down. And I, it's happened to numerous clients of mine where, uh, you know, we've gotten their roof paid, and they they thought, oh, well, I'll just do a recover, and then they're calling me six months, a year later, saying that the roof's still leaking. Why? Well, it's because your roof was water saturated, and that's why the carrier paid for a roof replacement. You should have gotten the full roof replaced. So yeah. co- coatings, you know, I guess coatings are good if. If you truly have some other roofing issue that's unrelated to a storm event and there's no insurance coverage and you have to come out of pocket, it's a cheap way to temporarily protect your roof. But coatings are not a a end-all be-all solution and you shouldn't let the carrier convince you that that's appropriate for to put you back in your pre-loss condition
0: um, when it's really not. If um, if If you let them say no now, like, will they, will that be used against these property owners in future claims down the road? Like if you settle for something less like a coding job or a denial, do you think like the carrier catches onto that and they, they know that you're not willing to put up a fight later on down the road in future claims?
1: I don't, I don't think they track each property owner like that. Um, I just think that the carriers inherently are going to try to sell you on something that's less than what you need. Um, because again, they don't make money by paying out claims. And so they're, they're always going to try to sell you on something less than what you truly need. Um, and so I think in that regard, they will do the same thing to you over and over and over again. Uh, now if you have an adjuster who's savvy and he goes out there and sees that you've accepted a coding in the past, he will probably try to sell something like that to you again in the future. Why not? Um, (laughs) so yeah, I just can't stress enough. I mean, it it just really every conversation you have about this really just boils down to as a property owner, just making sure that you have somebody that knows what they're doing to help you. and it's just so important, I, yeah. I, you know, I can't stress that enough because the carriers do, do truly want to put you on an island, so that way you won't fight and you'll give up. Um, and that's that's just the reality of it, and it's a shame, it really is.
0: Can um, I mean, can a can a property owner only involve you in terms of like representing you in like litigation, or can they bring you on prior to you filing? you know, a suit against their carrier.
1: Yeah. So property owner can bring us on from before they even make the claim. Um, there's only, there's only two people in the state of Texas that can represent a property owner and negotiating an insurance claim. And that's a public adjuster and a lawyer. And so yeah, property owners, um, can call us up before they even make a claim and, and, and property owners do from time to time, uh, just from past clients, or, you know, we do property tax litigation for commercial property owners and they know what we do. And so sometimes we get a call from one of our property tax clients. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, they can do that. And we charge less of a fee for that. And the goal is to get it done without having to file a lawsuit. Um, the, the goal in every single case that I have is to get the claim resolved as cost effective as cost-effectively and as quickly as possible So the property owner can, can do the repairs that they knew need and move on with their life. Awesome, man.
0: Well, man, I, to kind of wrap things up, I, I want to, I know there's not a property owner that I've talked to that likes, that likes hiring a lawyer, (laughs) (laughs) uh, that there's, there's a few out there, but, um, most people have this kind of aura around hiring an attorney and, they have some fears about it they think that you know it's going to take x amount of time they think that attorneys are going to take you know 35 45 55% of proceeds and they think that that's going to come out of their budget that they get to do the work and then they they fear that they're just going to spend all this time all this energy and they're just going to end up with not enough money to do the project anyways so can you can you kind of talk a little bit about that to kind of put some of those fears to rest a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So uh, most lawyers that do this, do it on a contingent fee, and they will pay the expenses. And uh, the good lawyers will fight to recover their attorney's fees, in addition to the actual costs to do the work. And so you need to make sure that you have a lawyer that's going to fight for everything. So that way you as a property owner are only gonna pay uh, your deductible to get all the repairs done. And so, um, you know, remember, in a breach of contract case in Texas, you can recover attorney's fees in addition to the cost to do the repairs. And you can also recover other things, but one typical recovery is interest in addition to the cost to do repairs. And that's under the Prompt Pay of Claims Act. And so you can typically recover enough money for a property owner to do all the repairs they need, plus attorney's fees and all the rest of it. Um, So the property owner is truly getting uh, what they need to do their repairs, and they're not paying more than their deductible to get that done. And so it, it is, you know, you just need to make sure that you're partnering up with the right lawyer to do that. And you know, a lot of a lot of clients too just need to set what expectations they have from the very beginning when they hire a lawyer. And I'll give you an example. I have clients that will hire us and they will say, you know, how often do you communicate with your clients? And I tell them as much or as little as you want us to communicate with you. Um, And so I will set the expectation out from the very beginning. And some clients they want a, a call or an email every few weeks. Some clients don't want to be bothered unless that there's something significant that's happened. Uh, but as long as you set expectations from the very beginning on client communication, what you want out of the, the lawsuit, then the relationship with the lawyer is going to be a great one. Um, and, and you know, if it, if it ever starts not to be, then you need to let that lawyer know immediately. Um, the number one complaint with lawyers is, is lack of communication. So we we always try to do a good job of communicating with our clients but I think I think setting expectations from the very beginning of what you want I think that goes a long way with working with any law firm it's just like any relationship you have right you go you go out on a a first date and you decide whether or not you like that person and you want to go out on a second date right and at some point in that relationship early on you have to set expectations if you if you start dating, a, and I'll give you a great example. If you start dating a girl and she never wants to have kids, but you want to have kids, then why would you continue dating that girl? You know you're not on the, the right path together for life, right? And, and you have to have those same types of talks with your lawyer. And you have to get on the same page from the very beginning of the relationship. And as long as you do that, then I, I think you'll have a better experience with, with the lawyer Um, and it, and it won't be as scary, but just keep in mind on these lawsuits, you can recover attorney's fees and interest in addition to, um, in addition to the actual damages. And maybe that's why we go to trial so much is because we're not just settling a case and taking a chunk away from the property owner. So ask your lawyer, when's the last time they've been to trial? Um, because that, that'll have a big impact on whether or not you should hire that, hire that lawyer or not.
0: That's great, man. Well, no, well, man, I, I, I love having you on, man. And I think this is awesome. And I know for some listeners listening to this, sometimes they can feel like they got their teeth kicked in or it seems a little doom and gloom, the stuff that we talk about, but I think there's been some really good positive stuff that's come out of this. And I always like to end with you kind of giving some insight about some good things that are happening, some things that you see in the industry, some things that you see on, with some changes that are going on? What, what's something to kind of end on that's that's positive that you've been seeing lately?
1: Um, you know, <laughs> I hate to say this, but in our industry, it is pretty difficult, right, to see the positives because it is so uh, one-sided. I will say uh, one of the positives that I have really seen is a lot of these federal court judges that were tough on bad faith and tough on these insurance claims is really seeing that a lot of this is carrier driven and they're starting to, to turn the tide around on these carriers and starting to deny uh, a carrier's request to end the bad faith inquiry. And they're really starting to hold these carriers responsible for their actions. And I think that that is a, is a major positive um, because when you have the court system uh, starting to realize that these, these insurance lawsuits have a lot of validity to them and they're not just lawyer-driven or public adjuster-driven or contractor-driven, that there's, they're actually valid lawsuits and it's the carriers that are creating the problem, when you have federal judges and state court judges that are starting to see that, then that's when hopefully change will start to be made in the in, in the, the entire industry. And so uh, in, in that regard, I'm hoping that that helps the tide swing and it become uh, fairer for for the insured. Um, and so I, I think that that's the, probably the biggest positive that I have seen as just a true litigator in these insurance claims.
0: That's awesome, man. Brother, I can't thank you enough for coming on, man. I think this Marcus, has been great.
1: Let me, let me ask you. I I didn't yeah. get to ask you a question. What what positives are you seeing?
0: So some, like you said, it, it's it's tough to see it sometimes because you and I are in the problem business, right? The only time people call us is when they've got problems, and um, some positives that I'm seeing is that the word is getting out more about what a public adjuster is. And I think um, our industry is is getting smarter overall. Um, I think this industry, in particular the hail market, was chock full of guys that were snaking deductibles and doing a bunch of uh, bad stuff. That stuff is still out there. It's still happening on a large scale, but I think it's it's decreasing. And I think the guys that are in this industry for the long haul are, we're kind of banding together. And it used to be, I'm not going to show my cards to this guy. I'm not going to let him know everything I'm doing. I'm not going to share information about tricks that I'm doing. And I feel like that's kind of turning a little bit where the guys are sharing information and people are getting smarter in this industry. Because at the end of the day, the the people that we're up against are multi-billion dollar companies They have millions and millions of dollars that they use to lobby to get things changed. They are expert advertisers. Um, They make everybody believe that you're in good hands or they're a friendly neighbor. Um, And they're very, very good at getting people, focusing on what people wanna focus on, which is their monthly premiums, getting their premiums down. But I feel like the smarter the contractors are getting, the smarter that the experts are getting in this industry, the more the word is growing to homeowners. And I'm hoping from things and avenues like this podcast and other things that homeowners will have more tools in their pocket that they don't shoot themselves in the foot before they have a loss. Like they can have a better policy in place. They make sure that they have the proper endorsements that they don't take on exclusions unless it's something that they understand and they're prepared for. So the spread of information I think is something that I'm really excited about. I'm really excited about this podcast and I'm really excited for anybody who comes on here. Um, and I'm, I'm not doing this to try to get sponsors and endorsements and try to make money with this thing. The only thing I'm doing is trying to get information out there and that way when clients do call me, we have all of our tools at our disposal i'm not having to shoot ourselves in the foot oh you've got building code coverage oh you got you know slow seepage uh endorsement on your policy that's awesome i don't have to fight that awesome cool like let's let's get rocking and rolling so i i think i think overall that that's what i'm most excited about is just this information and the industry as a whole getting smarter
1: yeah and yeah look the the scariest thing that would happen to the insurance industry is if we would all band together. Uh, in a concerted effort to try to make things fair. Uh, I think that's what they fear the most and, um, and absolutely I agree with that. I mean the more we can arm these homeowners with information, then, then the better they the better chance they have of getting paid with what they truly uh, should be paid uh, so that way they can make the, the, the repairs that they need done. So I, I love this podcast too, man and I've enjoyed this. Um, and so i will happy to come on anytime you need me and happy to answer any questions for anybody uh, to help help inform people. And if you're a lawyer watching this and you need help on a claim or you need a deposition transcript or or you want to talk about one of my trials, then call me. I'm, I'm happy to help out anybody, man. That's
0: awesome, man. Well, I'm excited to show up to that Fort Worth trial. I'm going to have a DC just painted on my <laughs> chest without my shirt on. Is I love it. Can I- can I come in shirtless with like a big sign? And, Absolutely. And hey, March, you on?
1: March 27th, Judge Pittman in Fort Worth, Delaney Vineyards. Uh, seriously, um, it's a, it's a it'll be a great trial. Um, Vinny's gonna be my law partner is gonna be the lead attorney there, and uh, you know we I think we have some really good facts, and we're gonna go to the jury with bad faith so we'll see what happens uh we like our chances though man we really do we like our chances we've got a great client a great story and uh you know hopefully we'll come out successful
0: we'll see if i can't get a a group of picketers out front and just like (laughs) yeah get a group out there and make a statement whenever the lawyers come in the building
1: yeah insurance companies (laughs) are horrible they routinely underpay and deny claims uh, and, and Marcus, look, I, I would love to talk about some of the things we're going to bring up at this trial, but I don't want to give away our trial strategy, but I promise if you go, the one witness you want to see is the insurance company's expert, because we are going to absolutely obliterate him. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited about it. So anyway...
0: Oh, I'm 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 going to be there, man. My my birthday is a couple of days later, so yeah. that, that could be your birthday present, Timmy is just grilling this guy.
1: I love it. I love it. Anybody that wants to come, they can show up. It's a it's a public forum, so
0: that's awesome, man. Yep. Well, I appreciate it, brother. And again, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and I'm definitely going to have you on again, man, but uh definitely appreciate it and uh guys appreciate y'all listening and uh we'll catch you on the next one. All right. Thanks a lot, Marcus. Bye, everybody.